visiting here with us, uh, if you'll bear with us for just a moment, we're going to do a little bit of memory work as we do before each class. <clears throat> and we are looking at chapter summaries. Let's go back to Acts chapter 10. What was Acts chapter 10? Gentiles conversion, Acts 11. It's a sort of a carryover from 10. Peter recounts the Gentiles' conversion. Chapter 12, Herod, James, and Peter, how they're related in Herod's persecution of these uh, men. <clears throat> Chapter 13 and 14, first missionary journey. Remember the cities or the areas, Cyprus, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Right. Remember our acronym sealed? Uh, chapter 15. Circumcision discussion. Chapter 16 begins what? Second missionary journey. Acts 16 is uh, what city? Philippi. Okay. Paul and Silas are in prison there at Acts 13 is Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And now we're in those cities. We're in the Macedonian area. Remember the Macedonian call? Come and help us. And then chapter 18, we did last week, was what city? Corinth. And a couple of notable people in that chapter we are introduced to are who? Aquila and Priscilla. Remember those cities, Acts 19, today's lesson is Ephesus. I want you to think, <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about this, about each city has a unique characteristic that is brought out by Luke and the Holy Spirit that there's some teaching or an event there that is beneficial for us to understand and learn as we study Acts. Each has its own characteristic, if you will, or own problem that they're dealing with. And such is what we see in Acts 19 here today. We, we're going, if you'll uh, direct your attention to the, about the center of the map, we have looked. Paul has left on his third journey from Syria, Antioch of Syria. He's headed in a northwesterly direction going through Phrygia, Galatia. And now he comes over to Ephesus. He's going to spend uh, about three years there, according to the next chapter. Chapter 20 will indicate as Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, he said, I spent three years there with you working. And he spends three years here. He spent, last week we saw about a year and a half in Corinth across the coast, across the sea there. So that is our study for today. Acts 19, chapter Acts 19, the third journey in Ephesus. <clears throat> All right, let's begin our reading here in verse 1. Acts 19, verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, remember we were introduced to Apollos in the previous chapter, verse 24. Apollos were introduced to him because of the, his teaching. He was mighty in the scriptures, but he was incorrect as far as baptism goes. Now he goes from there, Ephesus, across the sea there, if you remember on the map, over to Corinth. And while he is at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found certain disciples. He said unto them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, 
We did not so much as even hear whether the Holy Spirit had been given. And perhaps this is one of those characteristics that you would, it would be a rather obvious uh, thing. We might not know whether somebody has been baptized for the right reason unless we inquire. And the Holy Spirit at that time would be something that perhaps might be a little bit more obvious. And you see these people, they don't, they don't do any uh, per certain acts from the Holy Spirit, prophecy or tongue speaking or anything of that nature. Verse 3, he said, uh, then in what were you, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the, the baptism of repentance, saying the people that should believe on him should, uh, on him that should come after him, that is on Jesus. And when they heard this, what did they do? They were baptized. Uh, Sometimes we might incorrectly say baptized again, but they were baptized for the proper reason, right? They were baptized into, verse 5, into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands upon them, notice that then they received the Holy Spirit, verse 6, and they were able to do what as a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon them? They were able to speak with these tongues and prophesy. Those are the signs that perhaps Paul did not evidence when he saw these brethren. He didn't see their ability to do that. So perhaps this is one of the things that brought the question to mind, uh, to the forefront early. So they were able now to do this, and all there were about 12 men, verse 7 says. So we look at a situation like this, it could be part of the, it perhaps might be a result of the teaching, the preaching of Apollos that we saw in the previous chapter, maybe, maybe not, but whatever it is, these people have uh, the incorrect belief, and uh, I would term this baptism for the wrong reason. So we look at the reasons for baptism. There are, it, it does matter what we believe and for the reason for which we are baptized. And I want to go over those briefly here. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we will see three of those reasons highlighted in Acts 2 verse 38. We see there, he says, repent and be baptized in what name? The name of Jesus. It's also, uh, we're told that in Matthew 28. Jesus in the Great Commission says, I want you to go baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see Peter highlighting in the name of Jesus in Acts 2 verse 38. Also in the same verse he says, we must be baptized for the remission of sins. That's another reason for which we are baptized. We cannot be baptized for the wrong reason into a denomination or to be in a certain local congregation of people. Number three, the Holy Spirit was received in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There, we understand. We've read that, uh, studied that a few months ago. And I would add to that, number four, we must be baptized into the death of Jesus. We see that in Romans 6, verse 3 and 4, that we're buried in baptism. We are buried into the death of Jesus. And uh, that is the belief that we have when he's rehearsing that in Romans 6. He's explaining or re-explaining to 
people why they were baptized. Why, he says, why you were baptized, and that should indicate or be evidenced by your manner of life that, that takes place thereafter. So four reasons that we're baptized. When we have people sometimes that are, we may, may say, immersed in water for the wrong reason, then it has to be corrected, as Paul did these brethren here. It has to be for the proper reason. If you're baptized or immersed in water to be part of a denomination, then you're not baptized, as Paul outlines here, for the right reason. As we've outlined in Acts 2.38, Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. All right, let's go on to uh, verse 8. After having dealt with these brethren, we enter now into a part of the chapter that I would pretty much say at least verse 9 through the end of the chapter deals with a character, a certain characteristic that is seen in the Ephesian area or the the Ephesus area. And that is uh, the idea of power that... uh, that they trust in, what power that they trust in. Let's read verse 8. He says, He entered into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, reasoning and persuading as to the things concerning the kingdom of God. And he was caused to leave this area for what reason? Here again we have an element of people that dog his trail, Everywhere he goes, and who is that? The Jewish people, and perhaps we can look at this later, but all throughout Paul's ministry, all throughout his ministry, he's faced with Jewish opposition, as he is here in the synagogue. And some were hardened and disobedient. They spoke evil of the way, that is the way of God, verse 9, before the multitude, And he departed, separated the disciples, took them with him, and then they began meeting at the school or the hall of Tyrannus in verse 9. And this continued for how long? For two years. If you will, go over to chapter 20 in verse 31. Paul indicates as he's rehearsing to the Ephesian elders how long he spent with them. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I was with you for the space of three years. I cease not to admonish you, every, every one of you, day and night with tears. So the total time appears to be three years, the time he spends in this particular aspect of his teaching there in the school of Tyrannus seems to be two of those years. And it continues, verse 10, those that heard the word of the Lord were both Jews and Greeks, so we're not entirely, he's not entirely rejecting the idea of teaching to Jews, he still wants to teach to anyone who will hear, anyone who will listen. So he teaches this to Jews and Greeks, verse 10. And I want you to notice verse 11. Here's where we really get into the, the crux of the lesson that has to deal with it, the city of Ephesus. Verse 11, it seems to me that the Holy Spirit saw the need for this to be manifest in such a way where it could not be disputed in any way by anyone. 
Verse 11, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. And I want you to keep your finger here and go on over to, we're going to look briefly ahead to verse 27. They are dealing with a, an idol god, Diana, and the, the mentality of these people in Ephesus is such that they're concerned at this point, verse 27, that she would become deposed or be removed from her place. Last part of verse 27, that she should even be removed from her magnificence, whom all Asia and all the world worship. And then skip also down to verse 35. All three of these verses, I think, highlight and indicate to us what type of city this is. When the town clerk disquieted them, he told, told the people of Ephesus, everyone knows that this city is a temple keeper of the great Diana. Everyone knows and recognizes this city for what it is, that we are the, the temple keeper of the great goddess Diana. So you tie all three of those verses here together and you see what type of city it is that we're dealing with in Ephesus. They trust in magical arts, they trust in sorcery, they trust in idolatry. Now let's continue, uh, let's go back to verse 11. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul insomuch that under the sick were carried away from his body handkerchiefs or aprons. And the disease departed from them, and the evil spirits went out. The manner in which these miracles were done, it seems to indicate that it didn't take uh, much. It didn't, in other words, it didn't take Paul going to the person that was sick or diseased. He didn't have to go to them and physically lay hands upon them. Just a handkerchief or an apron or something from him could be taken to them, and they would be healed. Thus, why we indicated earlier that the Holy Spirit saw fit and saw a need that these people see the power of the Holy Spirit and that it would be evidence to them. Verse 13, certain also of the strolling Jews or exorcists <clears throat> took upon them to name over them that had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So picture what you have here, the popularity of the teaching of Paul is, is gaining momentum, and the people there in the city see this, and especially the people, like you think about somebody like Simon the sorcerer. You remember in Acts chapter 8, what did he want to do? When he saw that power, he wanted it for himself. That's the same kind of situation you're seeing here in this chapter they, these exorcists or these uh, fakes, they want that for themselves as well. So they begin saying, I adjure you by whom? I adjure you. See, there's an incantation that they've witnessed. They think, if I say the right words, if I do this in the proper way, then perhaps something will occur that uh, makes me look good makes me uh, be able to keep my position as an exorcist. <clears throat> so there are some of these, verse 7, or verse, uh, rather, verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jew, a chief priest who did this. Verse 14, these seven sons of Sceva, they did this. So he says, some thought that they could do this 
And seven sons of Sceva were one of those that thought that. Verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said unto them. Now picture this in your mind. An evil spirit is speaking to these men that are trying to do what Paul does. And picture this in your mind. And he comes out and he says what? Yeah, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but I don't know you. Why is that? A little bit louder. They don't really have the power, do they? They're not in that that world that has that true power, the genuine power. Now, let's look at verse 9 through 20. Genuine power... And our outline, genuine power versus a fake. The people of Ephesus have seen genuine power. Now we've got the fakes. They want to try to do this as well. To continue their following, continue uh, making money or whatever they do with it. In verse 16... The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped upon them, mastered both of them, prevailed against them, and so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Was this done in a corner in secret? Verse 17 indicates to us that how many people knew about it. All, no, became, uh, it became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, that dwelt at Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was magnified. Let's go back to the idea. The Holy Spirit, seeing the need that Ephesus in particular had, allowed even handkerchiefs and aprons, a piece of cloth to come from Paul and heal people. And the people were amazed. People were able to magnify God as a result. Verse 17 says, this is not in a corner. This is not done secretly. All were able to see Jews and Greeks, all that dwelt at Ephesus. And then in verse 18, 19, and 20, what we might call the results of repentance are evidenced by these people. They didn't just go ooh and ah and think, wow, how does he do that? These people that we see in verse 18 through 20 have a repentant heart because they did what? They brought their books, burned them, and understand that this city is full of Magical arts, full of sorcery. It's full of this kind of belief and idolatry. And these people trusted in that. That was their, their trust was in this. And then when they see the genuine power versus a fake, they can see it, can't they? So they saw it and they brought, they came confessing their deeds, verse 18. Not a few of them, verse 19 says, they brought their magical arts books, burned them in the sight of all. Now, I know people who perhaps have had uh, possessions that they get rid of, they just destroy them because 
I've heard of people that maybe have some movies that possess some movies that are really not pure. And instead of just giving them away, they destroy them rather than letting them wind up in the hands of somebody else. Notice these people don't want these books in the hands of other people. They burn them. So it comes to an end. If, it, if, if I've got anything to do with it, they say, I'm going to burn this. So no one else gets this and uses it in an improper way. They counted the price, and the price is about 50,000 pieces of silver. It's very unsure how much this would relate to in our money, but some have indicated it's several million dollars worth. 50,000 pieces of silver, the price of them all. So mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. So as we look at the genuine power versus a fake in beginning of verse 9 through 20, he's, in, he's working in the school of Tyrannus. All in Asia heard, Jews and Greeks, special miracles wrought. Please note that as we study Ephesus, tie Ephesus into this idea. Special miracles were wrought there. To magnify the power of God, magnify the Holy Spirit in such a way that it could not be refuted by these people in any way. The seven sons of Sceva, they tried to imitate this. They were shown to be false. Perhaps they were very well known. And they're shown to be false. So again, the Lord is magnified. And many confess their, the true power and they burned their books. They did so to keep, to put an end to this. Now, I want you to think about this idea of the true power and, and shown in Ephesus. We spoke, I think it was last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit. Either the word Holy Spirit or Spirit is found about 55 times in the book of Acts. And that's not at all the total number of times we see it. Such as the man with the Macedonian call, he calls over to Paul and says, come help us. That's the Holy Spirit working. The vision that Paul saw last week was the Holy Spirit. What we see here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is saturating the entire book of Acts, showing us his power. Jesus left the earth and he said, I want to leave the Holy Spirit with you to guide you into all truth. And that's exactly what we're seeing, again, unfolding before our eyes here. And I want you to think, as we pause here for just a minute, <clears throat> think about the book of Ephesians. The word power is mentioned six times specifically in the book of Ephesians. And that thought, I think, is, is quite prevalent in the book of Ephesians. Such as Ephesians 1.19, he shows that God says, I'm showing you my power by the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 1, or uh, Ephesians 1.19. Let's flip over there real quick. <clears throat> and you see, you begin to see the relation of a book that is later written to these people here that has a little bit to do with what we're seeing begin to unfold in the book of Acts. Acts or Ephesians 1.19, God chose to show his exceeding great power to us who believe according to the strength of his might. Verse 20 goes on to say that he did that by showing or by raising his son. He showed us his power by raising his son. 
On and on through the book of Ephesians, he'll talk about the power. It's one of the, one of the common ideas that's brought up in that particular book. So mightily grew the word of the Lord. I want to pause here as well. Let's go back and look about how many things that we've seen use that phrase in the book of Acts. Acts 2, verse 47. All of these scriptures that I have on the screen here either use that phrase, so mightily grew the word of the Lord, or something of that nature. Acts 2, verse 47, the beginning of the church People are accused of killing Jesus, but what does the church do? 3,000 were saved that day. Acts chapter 5, we have the apostles being beaten and charged and told to stop preaching, but mightily grew the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 6, we have conflict within the church there in Jerusalem. The Grecian widows are neglected but mightily grew the word of the Lord. It doesn't matter what problems that are faced or what problems that we see. Acts 8, verse 4, persecution, scattering. When those people scattered, they took what with them? They took the word of the Lord with them where they went. Acts 9, Saul is persecuting the church and killing people, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Acts 11, the persecuted went all the way as far as Antioch. This is quite a distance away now from Jerusalem. And the word of God continued to grow and multiply and increase. Civil government by Herod kills James and tries to kill Peter. Acts 12, verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Acts 13, verse 52. They're rejected, preaching there, they're rejected at Antioch, but the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. Acts, uh, that should be Acts 15, no, no, I'm sorry, it's Acts 16, verse 5. That's a follow-up to what happened in chapter 15. There's a major, major doctrinal issue of circumcision that's brought up. But it did not deter the work of the Lord. The kingdom of God grew and multiplied. And here we see in Acts 19, verse 20. The great power that people trust in, and some of us might go to Ephesus and think, we will never, ever reach these people's hearts. We will never be able to break that hold that sorcery and magical arts and idolatry has upon these people. But Acts 19, verse 20 says, So mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. It doesn't matter what the Holy Spirit and the apostles face. It doesn't matter if it's a doctrinal problem, doctrinal problems inside the congregation from without, persecution, idolatry, paganism. The list goes on and on and on, but the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. Now, you might say, well, they, they had the Holy Spirit back then. We don't have the Holy Spirit now. Is that true? We have the Holy Spirit. Well, they had the Holy Spirit, and they could heal, and they could take out demons, and they had all these fanciful gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
So it's obvious they were able to grow and multiply the word of the Lord because of that. Is that true? Do they have an advantage that we do not have? Absolutely not. We have the Holy Spirit in its completed form, don't we? Is there any reason we should shrink back and think we do not have the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit? There should not, there should be absolutely no reason that we should feel that way. We shouldn't feel limited, diminished in any way by what we teach and what we preach any more than the apostles did. Yes. I want to go back and look and consider something that continues to be repeated throughout Acts. Uh, And it it struck me when I was reading Acts 19, verse 8 and 9. Two words, reasoning and persuading, verse 8, reasoning in verse 9. The word of God is a, you can reason from it, and you reason from it logically. And so a logical reasoning, understanding of Scripture is really what's driving the growth. Mm-hmm. And it's being confirmed by the, the, the gift, this, this Holy Spirit, and the miracles that Paul and the apostles did. When you go back to Acts 17, uh, in verse 2, Paul goes to the synagogue. What does he do? He explains he's giving evidence. When you go back to Acts 9, in verse 20, what's he, you know, what's he doing? He is um, reasoning, he's proving uh, that Jesus is the Christ. And so if we approach the scripture from a logical perspective, we can prove that Jesus is who he said he was. And that's what's changing these people is the evidence that Paul is giving these people. And that's what's, that's what's changing people. So often today, we are, our arguments are based off of emotion. And when you go back to verse... Um, in, in chapter 19, and, we, and you see what's happening in the city of Ephesus, their argument is an emotionally based argument, and we see the, the outcome of that. And so I think for us, the lesson is we've got to be well-versed in Scripture that we can then present Scripture in a logical manner to convince and convict, not base it off of emotion. Uh, and even when you think about Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Paul, uh, Isaiah, God is pleading to his people to reason with him. So it's not just a New Testament concept, it's an Old Testament concept, and we have got to do a better job in understanding Scripture from a logical perspective mm-hmm. if we're going to uh, evangelize the world. Right. Very good. <clears throat> Romans chapter 10, I think, speaks a lot to that, uh, that idea. Have another comment back here. I just want to say the goddess Diana was a goddess of war and uh, and of of, of 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 I guess it would be called today feminality or fem, fem, feminality or whatever. So to them that was important because um, their gods and their goddesses were supposed to be the ruler of their spiritual life, which means they brought them life and they brought them. 
they brought him everything that they have good on earth. So for Paul to come in here and for three years to take this this challenge of idolatry and witchcraft and everything and um, to, to bring it out and open for the sin that it is, that was very significant, especially back then, because um, that was not popular. Because even in um, the Roman citizens, they worshipped gods and stuff of that nature. Um, the Ephesians turning from God and burning their books and everything, that's great. But the reason the Ephesian letter was written was because they didn't have everything correct. And so, um, um, oh, I lost my thought. (laughs) In uh, in verse 21 and 22, we see some of Paul's travel plans. Uh, As we'll find out later, he wants to even go to Spain. I think Romans indicates that he wants to go to Spain. But here he... It's indicated that he would go through Macedonia and Achaia, and then uh, after that go to Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem. He wants to be there on the day of Pentecost, we'll see later. And then he wants to go to Rome. So here we see some of his travel plans. He leaves, uh, or he sends Timothy and Erastus that ministered to him, having sent them into Macedonia. Now we get into the rest of the chapter here, verse 23 through verse 40. 23 verse 41 rather. About this time there arose no small stir concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana brought no little little business unto the craftsmen. Apparently he had some sort of uh, guild, the craftsmen's guild there, where they all make money, they all work together, they all make money building these little shrines to Diana. Diana was a goddess of hunting and wild animals. And depending on what you read and who you read, some indicate that Diana was a goddess of all living things. But it's uh, certainly a goddess that they are trusting in. Some of your versions may use the word Artemis instead of Diana. So the craftsmen here are being threatened their occupation, their livelihood is being threatened. He gathered these people together in verse 25. says, Sirs, you know that by this business we have our wealth. We, we see it here that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia. This Paul, this Paul guy here has come and he has messed up our uh, livelihood. He's turned away hearts of people and... By saying these are no gods that are made with hands, that are crafted, you know, with hands, graven images. Verse 27, not only is there danger that this our trade come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana be made of no account, and that she should even be deposed from her magnificence, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, get this, Demetrius, the head of the guild, is saying, we have a problem. The problem is, if we allow Paul to continue as he is, what's going to happen to our pocketbook? It will greatly decrease. But notice his reasoning. Notice the reasoning that he uses. If we allow this to continue, what will happen to Diana? What will happen to Artemis? 
as if to say, you see how conflicting this is? If we allow this to continue, she will be replaced. How could you replace a God if you put your trust in her power? How could she be deposed if you put your trust in her power? What could dethrone her? You know, if, if we allow this to continue, she will be dethroned. See how conflicting that, I, that ideology is? Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with wrath and they cried out. They just needed something to spark them, them didn't they? They just needed something to spark that anger. And here they go, off into a riot, off into a mob. And at many times when you think about the book uh, or the city of Ephesus, I think about the riot that took place here. And it took place here because of the, the city is now their beliefs and their belief system is being destroyed simply by showing the word of God and showing the power of the word of God through the Holy Spirit. So verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. They rushed with, rushed with one accord into the theater. They grabbed Gaius and Arcus, or Aristarchus, a couple of Paul's companions. And uh, they dragged them, but they're not able to get Paul. Paul is uh, minded to go in. He wants to go in, but they, some of his brethren do not allow him to do so. And if you can't imagine the mob mentality, we've witnessed that all too often here in our country, the mob mentality. People are there, they're just stirred up, their emotions are stirred up. And so much so that it describes here that many were there and did they understand exactly why they were there? They did not even realize why they were there. They were just part of a mob, this mob mentality, a riot mentality. Some were there. Verse 32 indicates there were, the assembly was in confusion. The more part knew not why they had come together. They didn't know why they were there. They were just part of whatever Ephesus is doing. We want to be part of it as well. Verse 33, they brought in Alexander out of the multitude and they put him forward. And they realized that he was a Jew. In verse 34, they put him uh, to silence. And the town clerk now, in verse 35, begins to speak. The town clerk says in verse 35, when the, uh, he had quieted the multitude, he said, You men of Ephesus, what man is there who knows not that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Diana? See, they're going back, and as we said earlier, they're going back and putting their trust and resting upon this idea that we are the city that houses the great goddess Diana. This temple was described as having 60-foot columns, about an area 200-some feet by 400 feet, an area, a building in which they worship the great goddess Diana. It was the draw. Even though this was a commercial city, highly commercial city, a lot of people traveled to Ephesus. It was a city that was full of not only magical arts and sorcery as we saw, but now we see 
Also, how deeply entrenched they are in the idolatry. And Paul exposes that. Verse 35, the town clerk speaks up in this riot. And he says, you understand that this, we all know, we all understand that this city is the temple keeper of the great Diana. And of the image which fell from Zeus or or fell down from heaven. Seeing that these things cannot be gainsaid, isn't that interesting? Again, we have a, he says, we know what we have here. We're temple keepers of the great goddess Diana. It cannot be refuted. It cannot be disputed. It'll never be dismantled. You see, that's the idea. Don't do anything rash, he says. Uh, after all, verse 37, these men have not really done anything sacrilegious. They haven't robbed the, the temple of Diana. They haven't tried to desecrate our temple in some way. They haven't blasphemed our goddess in, in some way. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen that are with him have a matter, they need to take care of it in the civil courts in the proper manner. Let them do that in the proper way. Because if we continue, he goes on to say, if we continue the riot as we are at this point in time, and if we allow this to swell out of control, what might be the problem? What would happen? Rome would get involved. If there's riots, unruly riots in cities, no matter what the reason, Rome would get involved, put their thumb down on them in some form or fashion, and then life might become difficult for each and every citizen of us here in Ephesus. So let's quieten down. Rome, that's one thing Rome liked is to have peace in their cities. They didn't want their cities to be out of control in mob rule. They wanted them to be quiet and be at peace. And that's one thing the town clerk highlights here, that they would be uh, uh, a result of violating that desire from Rome. Verse 40, if, indeed, if we are in danger to be accused concerning this day's right, there be no cause for it. And touching it, we shall not be able to give account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Any thoughts to that point or the entire chapter? Yes. I think it's interesting to point out Paul's tactic here in, you know, how do you destroy this belief in this goddess of Diana? You don't do it by defacing the temple or attacking the building or robbing from the silversmiths that are creating the idols. You do it by converting the hearts of the people. And when you convert the hearts of the people, they destroy all of that idolatry and all of that, uh, you know, falsehood themselves. And so you see that in the, in the burning of the books. And I think that's what makes Demetrius so scared is that Paul is, is what he sees as the instigator of this, but it's, it's his own people who are turning against, you know, what they, they hold so dear and what is his livelihood. And that scares him because that's, that's a more powerful change than, than just, you know, somebody who's defacing a building. Mm-hmm. 
We, we saw in the earlier part of the chapter people that, that saw the power, saw the word, heard the word, and they realized it and re- repented. Did everybody repent? Did the whole town convert? No. But a great many did. And then we see later in the chapter that there are a lot of people there hanging on to this idea of idolatry, the benefit, the monetary, it, it packs their pocketbook. They're hanging on to that. It's hard to let go when it affects your pocketbook. It really is. But we didn't, they didn't convert everybody. But many heard the word. They saw the genuine power versus a fake. Yes. I thought it was interesting that it says that Paul had made friends with many of the rulers of this whole entire territory. I mean, we can, we can imagine how he did that. He was here for several years. It seems to me that you don't make friends with rulers by going in, being a troublemaker, beating people over the head with the scriptures, you know, and just really becoming a nuisance. You do it in a totally different way. And they respected him enough to try to keep him from getting into trouble with these people. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I think that's a good lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Appreciate your thoughts and participation.